Yeah, <laughs> well, it's good to see the kind uh, church of Redeemer. We enjoy being here. Always enjoy y'all's music. Y'all do a good job uh, with your music. I enjoyed it this morning. Uh, also was encouraged to know that I wasn't, I'm not the only naval officer who doesn't shave on the weekends. So that was encouraging to know. That's one of the things I hate about the Navy. I hate shaving. So, so it's the weekend is, is, is nice. Matthew chapter 18, if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, and if you're able, I encourage you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 18, <clears throat> beginning in verse 21 and concluding in verse number 35. This is God's Word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees and he implored him and he said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and he forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe me. And so his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him and he says, have patience with me and I, I will repay you. And he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported this to their master, all that had taken place. And, and his master summoned him and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to his jailers until he should repay all his debt. And so also, my heavenly Father will do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for how it applies to our heart. Father, we are grateful how you use it. And you have the ability to lay our soul bare and allow us to see ourselves for who we truly are. Father, we ask this morning that we would understand the gospel once again, and that it would have a great effect in our life. And we ask these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. One of Christ's main methods of teaching that he employed, of course, were parables. And you that are very familiar with the church and God's word have read these parables. There may be somewhere anywhere between 35 to 60 parables that Christ used to determine how you would couple them and how you would use them. The little word parable means to throw something aside or to cast something alongside of something. It's very easy to get the understanding there. A parable is Christ would take a, a spiritual reality. He would take a spiritual truth and he would take a human and an earthly story and he would cast those beside each other in order to instruct someone. He would take this kind of earthly story that everyone would get and then he would throw this story along in his teaching and give spiritual meaning to it. In Christ's teaching, he would use these parables to instruct on the kingdom of God. 
Often he would say the kingdom of God is like this. And then he would give a story. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, these parables would give us understanding of the kingdom of God. How the kingdom of God begins and how the kingdom of God ends. And, and what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. And how it's like to know if you're in the kingdom of God. Well, as we come to this parable this morning, this, this parable is, is not an instruction on um, how to get saved. It's not telling us that we can lose our salvation. But it is a parable to instruct us on how to know if we are saved. That if a person is saved, if a person is truly regenerated, if a person is truly in the kingdom of God, this will be how they operate. This will be how they order their life. We are sinful beings, as you know. Uh, we come into this life because of our fallen nature. We're, we're self-absorbed, aren't we? Um, we are consumed with ourselves. We, we did not have to be taught that. Um, we are come into this life uh, instructed or fabricated in a way to do that. We come into this life looking out for ourselves and, and not our neighbors. And that demonstrates itself in in many ways, but, but one way specifically is that we are constantly offending each other, aren't we? Um, we, we live in a world of offense. Um, we, we can't almost help offending people at times. Um, we do things and, and simply sometimes by, by the things we say we can offend somebody. Sometimes we can offend someone knowingly and some of us are so bad sometimes we offend people knowingly. We go out of our way to offend someone. Um, some people stay offended all of their life. Uh, they are in constant state of offense. We are, we are very touchy people, aren't we? Just very touchy people. Uh, we can be offended by the, the most minor of things, can't we? Some of you, you may be offended right now. Uh, you were driving to church and everything was fine and your spouse just made this, this one little statement and, and it just got inside of you and, and you can't shake it. And, and we're so complex in this offense, aren't we? Psychologically, we can, we can think we are over something and, and we have gotten past this and maybe we run into someone in, in, in the store or maybe someone we know they say something and it is though it brings it all right back to us and it is though we've made no progress whatsoever and, and, and on top of that we can get offended by the, the smallest of matters I, I was counseling someone this week and they were a professing Christian and they were not attending church at the time and, and I told them well, you, you need to attend church why, why, why don't you attend church and they said well the last time I attended church I was up giving a testimony and why I was giving that testimony someone was rolling their eyes why I was giving that testimony and I, I haven't gone back since and I said, well, well, sister, if, if I preach based on facial recognition, I would never preach again. That, that's, not a, that's not a reason not to go to church. You, you see, when you, you look at our lives, we're, all of us, no matter where we are, we, we have been offended at times and we have been struck by something. The, the context that we come into this morning is a context of church life. It is dealing in church life. He, Christ has just spoken, and he has spoken on how to deal with sin in the church. You, you know the passage, if, sin, if a brother is sinning, how to deal with this. He is speaking here to disciples. He is speaking here to individuals who are professing believers. These are people who say that they are saved, they are converted, they are followers of Christ. He is dealing with church life. 
And in speaking of this section, maybe it's come on the heels of him dealing with how to deal with sin in the congregation. Peter, Peter's one of those guys, his mind was always rolling. And it, was, it seemed as though Peter had gotten his mind wrapped around something that, that Christ had previously said, maybe in the previous section. And so Peter, he, he begins to think, and then he begins to think out loud. And he's thinking about, how many times do I have to forgive a person in the kingdom of God? Peter is like all of us naturally. He, he always wants to know the limit, right? Uh, what's the limit? Christ, this is some good stuff. Christ, I, I haven't heard this before. But can you give me a limit? There, there's there's got to be some place, some point that I get to that I don't have to forgive anybody. You, you, you know, Christ, maybe I can grit my teeth and, and, and maybe I can forgive to a certain point. But, but after a while, if a person's treated me like a jerk for so long, Christ, what, what is that limit? Uh, I mean, you almost think Peter's about to say, Christ, you, you've never met my mother-in-law around Christmas. You, you know, I can take about three or four days, but, but it's five days. It's six days. You, you don't know my boss. You, you don't know the challenge it is to deal with this individual. And Peter's saying, are there limits to forgiveness? And in those first couple of verses in 21, Peter says, how about seven? Is seven a good number? Is it a limit? Rabbinical tradition said three. And so some people believe that Peter's like saying, okay, I'm going to take three, I'm going to double it, and I'm going to add one. Okay, so Peter's, I mean, he's trying to go the extra mile here. Peter's saying, listen, what about seven Seven seems like a good number. I, I, I can forgive a person about seven times, but there are some irritating people in your universe, Christ. And is that enough? And Christ responds to him in verse number 22. And he says, I, I don't say to you seven times, Peter, but I say to you 70 times seven, and seven times 10, and then times another seven the number of seven, it, 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 it represents the number of completeness. It's, a, it's an infinite number. It, it cannot measure. Christ says, listen, my mercy, my forgiveness is infinite. Peter, there's no limit to my forgiveness. And so, just like all of us, we're, no, we never, none of us get beyond the limits of a child. You teach children by telling them stories. Christ says, let me... Let me tell you a story, Peter. This will give you an understanding. In Christ, he was, the, he was the master teacher, wasn't he? He's such a brilliant teacher. He says, let me tell you a story, and it's a two-act play story of a person committing the same offense. The first act is in 23 through 27. And you've heard the story. You get it. You understand it. A king, he is... An official king, he's over a land. He obviously has all kind of people under him. He has servants under him. And so he decides to have a day of an appointment. He wants to look at the books. He wants to see where everybody stood in the kingdom. How everybody stood in relationship to him. And one of his servants was brought before him. And it said that he owed 10,000 talents. You can read all types of descriptions of what exactly that means and how much it meant. But most people realize or most people believe that it was an amount that was un, uh, unable to be paid. Uh, th there would be no ability whatsoever to pay it. It, it would, may have taken something like 60 million working days to even pay it back. So, so it was not even humanly possible to pay this amount back. 
He owed a debt that, that could not be restored. There was no way that he would have the possibility. He could not scrape enough around the house. He could not go and get his inheritance early. There was no ability whatsoever to make this right. And so in verse 26, the servant comes to the king and he begins to tell him, the master tells him that he's going to pay it back. And, and the servant begins to beg and he says, Master, I ask that you would have pity on me and I, I ask that you would release me from this debt. Now there are two things that are peculiar here. One thing is peculiar is that the servant, it, it seems as though he was indicating that he thought that he would have the, the ability to pay this back. He actually thought that, that he could in some ways bring enough to the table to, to pay this back, which was irrational and logical. The second thing that's, that's peculiar um, is that, that the king not only forgave him, he canceled out all his debts. He not only forgave it, but he says it's, it's clean. You, you, you no longer have to worry about this whatsoever. This was a forgiving king the first play ends the servant now takes the place of the king beginning in verse 28 now there's a second story there's a role reversal you have the king you have the master and you have the servant the king forgives him everything he forgives him an infinite amount that he could never repay that is the first story now the second story now it's reversed the servant now takes the place of the king and now someone is under him you get the structure the servant as soon as he is it seems as though descended the steps of the palace he runs into a fellow servant that is under him and the bible tells us christ in the parable tells us he he owed a hundred denarii uh, it's really not a lot of money really in, in in today's economy maybe a few days work um, he, he could have paid this back uh, with enough time and enough effort he could have gotten this accomplished and, and the bible says that that this servant he, he not only grabs him he, he's aggressive he grabs him by the throat you you're almost just sitting there you, you can imagine christ teaching you would be amazed at his demeanor that that he would grab him by the throat after he had been forgiven so much and he grabs him by the throat and you're, you're amazed at the hypocrisy. And the man responds and he says, I, I will pay it back. It, it was self-evident that he could pay this back. It was self-evident that, that he could make this right. And all he asked was for time. He says, just give me enough time. I, I can scrape this together. Maybe he was going to go to family members. Maybe he was going to cash in something. But he says, just give me some time. And, and this... The servant in his hypocrisy, it says that he, he threw him into prison because he was not able to pay it back. And, and you can imagine the disciples, their, their mouths are kind of wide open at this right now. This is amazing hypocrisy. Well, news travels fast in the kingdom. The fellow servants, they, they heard the story and they, they ran back to the king and the king was was furious and he throws him into prison the, the, the parable is 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 not a message about unbelievers it is it is a message for believers um, 
It is a message for people who say that they are in the kingdom. The message is very simple. That, that each day of our life, we reenact this parable time and time again. We live in this parable. We live in this parable in our marriages. We live in this parable in the way that we relate to our extended family. We live in this parable in our workplace. We live in this parable in the way that we relate to our children. We are constantly reenacting this scenario on a daily basis. Uh, Sproul said one time that a good hermeneutic to have is that whenever you read a story in the Bible and you see that there's a bad guy, there's a villain, a good hermeneutic to have is to always say that you're that villain. I'm that villain. I'm the bad guy. Oftentimes we read the story and we think, no, Uncle Jimmy's the bad guy in the story. No, a good hermeneutic is to have is that we are the bad guy. The gospel tells us that we are the bad guy. We, we are the villain. And Christ is teaching that a person who has been truly saved is a person who will have the gospel undergird all their relationships. They've experienced the gospel of forgiveness. They've experienced of being forgiven an infinite amount. And because of that forgiveness, that will flow out in how they relate in all of their social settings. That's the message of the parable. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Forgive each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. If a person has a works-based relationship with God, um, if a person relates to God as though God is an unforgiven scorekeeper, um, if a person has a self-righteous relationship with God, a, a, a system of debits and credits with God, um, in, in essence, that's what Peter was asking for. Um, in essence, Peter was saying, God, I, I want a debit and credit, okay? Um, is, is, as, long as, as long as I've got enough credits, things are good. But if my debts outweigh my, my credits, there's a problem. If a person relates to God that way, they will begin to relate to their neighbor that way. And the message of the, 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 the parable is this, is that Christ is teaching his disciples, do you want me to relate to you that way? The way that we relate to our neighbor, would we want Christ to relate to us that way? Would we want Christ to deal with us in that way? The greatest deterrent of all of our relationships is that we believe that we have the ability to pay back to God what we owe Him. That's the greatest deterrent in our relationships. We all live as though we actually could pay that debt back. We actually believe that, that we have the ability to go to God and we can do that. And we can compensate it. You know, I don't care what relationship it is, especially in the marriage relationship. If we operate that on a basis, it will destroy all relationships. Doug Wilson says this. He says this quote about marriage. He says, we must deal with the fact that marriage means marriage of a sinner to a sinner. In order to deal with sin rightly, we have to understand forgiveness. And anyone who wants to be married in this fallen world without understanding forgiveness is frankly out of his or her mind, end quote. 
we live in a constant world of forgiveness. Now, if we are honest, we would say that, that forgiveness is a complex struggle. As I've often said, as I've already said, we can think that we have forgiven someone and, and then it is though it comes back to us. And, and, and there's times in, in our, our life that we, we think something is done and then all of a sudden it comes back. Let me say this to you, church. That each time that you forgive somebody that has wronged you, it is the most miraculous event that takes place in God's universe. It is a miraculous event. If at times in your household, there are times that people say, I have done wrong. And there are times that people say, I forgive you. The angels in heaven are rejoicing. It is a miraculous event. Because we do not come into this life prepared to do so. We come into this life prepared to blame our issues on another. Forgiveness is a miraculous act of a glorious God working. Though they have to forget that that ever happened. I don't believe that that is forgiveness. We have minds. We understand things. Um, forgiveness is not the same as removing all consequences for actions. Um, Esau, it was said of Esau in the book of Hebrews that, that he could not go undo all the consequences that had taken place in his life um, from an earthly standpoint. Uh, when we forgive an individual, it, it doesn't mean that we're, we're able to uh, remove all consequences. When a person asks for forgiveness, they, they cannot repent of all consequences. Life tells us that history matters, right? Life tells us that, that people have a past and, and history means something. Forgiveness is not the same as it's forgiving everything. Forgiving is not the same as, as trust. Um, forgiving a person does not mean that that person has the same trust that they once did. Uh, that sometimes can be a consequence as well. Uh, forgiveness doesn't mean that we, we close our eyes to, to obvious weaknesses in a person's life. Uh, forgiveness does not mean that, that, that a person is immediately restored back to the same trust level that they had. If an individual came into this room and they were a forgiven individual, they were saved, but at one time they were a pedophile, we believe that they are forgiven. But that does not mean that they will be serving in junior church. There's an understanding of that. Uh, forgiveness is not the same as trust. If a spouse has been struggling with an, an ongoing struggle of pornography addiction and, and there seems as though there be gospel moving and gospel forgiveness, forgiving that person does not mean as though that trust comes to the immediate place that it once did. But there's a, there's a gospel way to restore trust and there's an ungospel way to restore trust. A, a gospel way to restore trust is, I forgive you. I believe that God has forgiven you. And I pray that in time, my trust for you will increase. That's a gospel way to forgive. An ungospel way is I forgive you but I don't care if pigs fly. I will never trust you again in this world. That's a fleshly way. That's an ungodly way. There is a gospel way and there is an 
ungospel way. For, forgiveness does, does not recognize or it doesn't forget that, that, that we're, still, we're still frail beings. Forgiveness doesn't mean necessarily those things. This parable teaches us that one of the central sins that Christ has saved us from is the sin of a double standard. We want to receive forgiveness from Christ on easy terms. But we want to shell it out on different terms. Anytime that a person to me in pastoral ministry and counseling, when a person is having a trouble understanding forgiveness or demonstrating forgiveness, I always go to the doctrine of total depravity. That's the doctrine I go to. If a person is struggling with forgiveness, that means to me they do not understand their own depravity. They do not understand their own wickedness. They do not understand their own need of forgiveness and what they have experienced from Christ. As one person says, we want to receive forgiveness through a fire hydrant, but we want to dish it out through a teaspoon, end quote. And that's what the parable is teaching us. The parable is teaching us is that this is how we live our lives. You know, in the covenant of marriage, is I see marriage problems all the time. People in marriage problems, they, they do not fall out of love. That's not the reason that marriages end. People do not fall out of love. People fall out of forgiveness. That's the reason that marriages end. As you think about the home life, the family life, parents, you, you, you want to know what a gospel-centered home looks like you want to know if you're doing a good job. You know, that's one thing as a parent. My dad often says, parenting is a difficult thing because you don't know how you did until it's over, right? That's the challenge of parenting. When this thing is over, then you're kind of like, okay, I get an understanding of how I'm doing. But you want to know a, a, a good test of how you're doing. And this doesn't have anything to do with a lot of stuff. I don't care about how you educate your children I don't care about what all your convictions are if you celebrate Halloween or if you think that Santa Claus is the second coming of the Antichrist, whatever it is. Oftentimes in reform circles, we evaluate those things as maturity. You want to know what a, a gospel-centered home is? Is that you're living in a constant rhythm and a gospel cadence in your home. What does that look like? In your home, someone is constantly saying, I have sinned against you. And someone is constantly saying, I forgive you. That's happening on a routine basis. And a husband and wife, they are setting the tone for that. They are constantly saying, I've sinned. I'm sorry. And a person on the other side is constantly saying, I forgive you. That is the cadence in the home. And, and when some miraculous event takes place and the children are actually doing that as well, this is a glorious event in the kingdom of God. You see, folks, that's what it means to live out the gospel. Living out the gospel means that we know that we sin and we know that we can't help but offend people. But we also recognize our sin. We acknowledge that sin. And on the other side, we also know that we're sinners. And we will forgive that. 
being a gospel-centered home means that we get over things quickly and we don't keep long ledgers. It's a gospel-centered homes. We don't keep long accounts. You can always tell a home that is, that is an immature home that's been affected by sin. One thing is no one talks to anybody ever anyways. And the second thing is that everybody remembers something that's happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. A gospel-centered person, they get over things quickly and they don't keep long accounts. The gospel, the parable states that the starting point for all gospel relationships is to understand that we have been forgiven an infinite debt by an eternal God and we cannot help but allow that same gospel to flow through us and respond to offenses to people in the same way. You say, why is it important? What does it matter? Well, verse 35 is, why is it important? So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Christ says the reason that it's so important is because if you are not doing that on a regular basis, you are showing that you may not be in the kingdom at all. He says if that's not the way that you respond, you're in danger of apostatizing from the faith. The danger is, is that if you respond to your brother on that way, he says, God says, I'll respond to you in that way. And I don't think anybody in the room wants God to respond to us in that way. Church, may we be a church that, that the gospel has effect in our life. That the gospel is not simply some message that saved us and now it has no bearing in our life. But the gospel is the structure in which we view everything and we relate to each other and it flows through us on a regular basis. We must have the Spirit of God working inside of our hearts if that will take place in our lives. Father, we come to you and acknowledge that we are frail beings. And Father, we find it impossible to acknowledge our own sin. And we find it impossible, Father, to forgive someone when they sin against us. Father, we pray to you and we beg you, Father, that you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, would allow the gospel, Father, to dictate every action and decision that we make. Father, that we would realize that we have been forgiven something that we could never repay and nothing compares, nothing in this lifetime to what someone has done to us compares to what we have done to you. And Father, may we realize we have been forgiven much and so, Father, we forgive much. And Father, may we do that. And as we do that, Father, realizes that it reflects your glory, Father, and it magnifies your greatness in this kingdom until you return. And we ask these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen.